Welcome to the Axiom Podcast, episode 16. back to another edition of the Axiom Podcast. I'm Joey Brandon, your host. And today we're going to be talking about marketing and your ideal customer. And this is one area that every business has to deal with. And the interesting thing is that when you talk about marketing, most people think marketing is one of those things that large corporations do. And, you know, Fortune 1000, Fortune 500, you know, companies that have these million-dollar marketing budgets. But the truth is, Small businesses have to be excellent at marketing or they just go out of business. The margin for error is so small that if a small business doesn't have their act together on the marketing front, then all it takes is a little blip in the economy, a blip in the local demographic, a blip in the local um, – it could be anything. It could be something as simple as a construction project happening on your front doorstep for a year. And you know we've dealt with that with some clients in the past where, you know, some major artery in the county or in the state is undergoing major public works improvements and the entrance to their business has Bob, Bob's barricades in front of it for two years. And it's a huge struggle for the business to stay in business because they didn't have an active relationship with their customers or with prospects where they could drive business in through the front door. They're basically order takers. And you saw this on a grand scale here locally in the southeast and in Florida in particular with the housing boom from 2000 to 2005. Most businesses were just simply order takers. They hung their shingle out and they put their product or service out on a marquee and there were enough people coming into the market that they did they did quite well just because they were taking orders. But in any kind of uh, challenging time, whether it's the economy or whether it's your local market, if you don't have some type of active marketing plan, an active strategy to go out to your customers and prospects and drive business in through the front door, then those periods of, of you know, lack of sales or downturn in sales can be catastrophic for the business and even drive the business out. So big companies – uh, they have these huge marketing budgets, but they also have quite a bit larger margin for error. They're they're usually looking for uh, market share gains in the order of magnitude of you know, four or five percent, um, even smaller than that in some cases. A five percent market share gain is huge, and they chip away at it with a marketing budget and get a quarter percent per year, or a half percent per per year, or whatever it is, and they're just trying to chip away at it. And that's a discipline that they have. These smaller companies so, – so go back to the larger company. If they're not successful, what does it mean? Well, it means you know, lack of 1% market share over their goal. That's not going to sink the business. It may cause them to reevaluate that business division and whether they should hold on to it or sell it or spin it off or whatnot. But it's not going to impact the company as a whole. It's not going to be life or death for the company. But in a small business, when we're talking about you know, $2 million, $10 million, $20 million in sales – and some major event happens, you know, locally in the southeastern United States in 2004, we had a spate of hurricanes who came through Florida and Mississippi and Louisiana. And 
there are a lot of businesses that were in that panhandle region that just did not come back because their contingency plan didn't include having to uh, draw customers in who were in the kind of situations that the the storm survivors were in. They didn't have a contingency plan when the orders stopped coming in. How are we going to drive customers to our business? And there's all kinds of, you know, around the storms and stuff, there's all kinds of operational things that happen. But I mention it because it doesn't take a catastrophic event like that to wipe your business off its foundation. Everybody would understand if you went out of business for that reason. What I'm talking about are things like CPA firms, law firms, medical practices, that were on such shaky financial ground that a simple 90-day downturn in their business because people, you know, put those things on hold. If I if my house got washed away or if, you know, I, I'm not sure, um, you know, whether the insurance company is going to pay to fix my roof or not, I'm going to put off preparing my tax return for the next three months because it's under extension anyway. Or I'm going to put off a visit to the doctor's office because we really need to replace our furniture or make some home repairs or, or whatever it is. And those businesses couldn't survive because they had been order takers. And they're completely reliant on people's willingness to walk in the front door of their business and offer to spend money with them. They didn't have a compelling case to draw people into the business for their product or service. So every small business needs that. A lot of them, if times are good, can get by without it. But when times are bad, you'll see those same businesses go out of business. The ones that do have that kind of stuff in a downturn gobble up market share like nobody's business. Because what happens is businesses don't go out of business when the last customer decides not to buy from them. That's not what happens. What happens is a business that previously had 5,000 customers needs about 3,500 customers, say, to break even. And when they get 3,499 customers and they can't break even anymore, maybe they get down to 2,900 customers and they've lost money for the last year, they finally decide to close the business. But guess what? Those 2,900 customers need a new place to go. So the companies that have a compelling marketing plan and they've made a discipline out of refining it and refining a lot of the things we're going to talk about today in terms of identifying your ideal customer and how you reach them – they go in and they fight for those 2,900 customers, and the companies that execute a marketing plan really well win those customers, and they get huge gains in market share as a result. We definitely saw that happen in this economy during the recession. The companies that and, – and they weren't always larger players. That's what people fail to understand as they go, oh, well, yeah, of course, all the little guys are going to get fed to the wolves during the recession, and the big just get bigger. Well, that's not true. That's not what happened. In a lot of cases, the well-run companies that had effective marketing plans were smaller than some of the bigger companies that went out of business. And they had made some smart operational and some smart financial and some smart capitalization decisions ahead of that, like having low debt so that their break-even levels were lower and they could stay in business longer with a reduced customer load. But the one thing that they all had some, – some had that, some didn't. The one thing they all had in common was – they were, com- they were constantly out there in the market trying to get customers, asking for customers, actively engaged with their marketing plan and making changes to it, and mes- testing and measuring and refining, and then testing and measuring and refining. And those are the companies that 
you know, you see a, a small company that was doing maybe $2 million in business competing with a $10 million company. The $10 million company pulled up stakes and left the area, and that $2 million company became a $5, 6 $7 million company over the course of the next two years because, again, they were gaining that market share. So I say all of that to tell you that this kind of stuff in terms of marketing is hugely important for the small company, much more important for the small company to get right than it is for the large company. The large company is going to be able to go out there and hire the expertise and the, and the, the outsourced help to make this kind of marketing plans work. What happens in small companies is that the budgets are smaller, the ability to go outside the company to hire the outside expertise is smaller, and the the amount of time it takes to bring in that outside expertise a lot of times doesn't make it feasible for the smaller company to invest in it. So what I mean by that is we've all had situations where it could be your accountant, it could be your attorney, it could be a marketing consultant, it could be it could be something personal like your doctor where there's something going on. There's there's a history to what's been happening. And you need that person, whoever it is, to, to understand the history before they start dispensing advice and possible solutions. But in the communication of the history, the history takes a long time to communicate. And there are nuances to the history that you don't think to explain because they may not be relevant in the beginning. But as different as you get farther into the engagement or farther into the relationship, all of a sudden – the nuances of that history, oh, you know, I forgot to tell you about this and I forgot to tell you about that. And, oh, there's one, there, you know, there, we didn't think that there was any reason we couldn't do this. But now that we think about it, we remember this other situation where we tried that and it was catastrophic because this one person, you know, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of times the the time that it takes to bring up somebody in the operations of your business, especially an outsider – so that they can begin to craft solutions on your behalf. It takes a long time. I know this from personal experience. When we go in and do strategic planning and consulting with a company, we start working with them right away. But I can always look back like a year down the road and go, man, I have learned so much about this company in the last year. And things that we were proposing and bringing to the table maybe in the first two to three months that we worked together – you know, now when we when we think of an idea or we evaluate some data and we go back to them with a solution, there's a lot of things that we don't even have to bring to the table because we know the history and we know, okay, we know that why that happened or we know why this won't work or we know what the situation is with this thing. And I don't have to just throw stuff out on the table and have them shoot it down because I don't have the benefit of that historical knowledge of what's happening inside the company. So if you can do your own marketing as a small company in that, say – 10 to $20 million space and below, a lot of times you have the ability to discover the stuff about your customers. And there are some specific tactics we're going to talk about today. And you can definitely employ outside expertise to help leg out those tactics, but you will be the quarterback of it. You will be driving it. You'll be the one who's evaluating the data that comes back. And a small business owner or general manager, chief operating officer, CEO, whatever that your title is and you're listening to this, if you can get your arms around this, this idea and get a comfort level with marketing and we can take some of the mystery away from it, some of the voodoo out of marketing, then you'll be amazed at how competent you can become at putting together a comprehensive marketing strategy for your company and legging that out. Now – I'm I'm an outsourced 
you know, professional for hire. So I, I get it that there's a place in the market for people like me who have the marketing specialization. And it could be that you just don't have the time to deal with this stuff or you don't have the energy to deal with this stuff or you're such an operator in a specific section of the business that it doesn't make sense for you to get involved in this stuff and you want to outsource it. And that, that's fine. I'm all for that. But I will say that there are a lot of people – just like there are a lot of people in my profession who talk to, talk about being um, strategy consultants or strategy coaches or that kind of stuff, and they don't know what they're talking about because they don't have enough experience with it or they don't have a real vision of what that t- kind of business is supposed to look like, and they're all just out after warm fuzzies. I see this all the time, and I've seen it in outsource marketing professionals too where they tell the business owner things that they want to hear. They bring some fancy tools to the table. They put together a glossy brochure and they collect their thirty or forty or fifty thousand dollar fee, and the needle doesn't move. We haven't gotten anything out of it. So, even if you're a CEO or business owner in one of those situations where you go, "Hey, I'm the least likely person to be running our marketing program. I don't belong there. I have other things that are more important." That's fine. You can go out and hire the outside help. But listen to what we're going to talk about today because it will allow you to evaluate the job that those outside professionals are doing for you. And if you can do that, then you're going to spend your money more wisely. You're going to be a better steward of your resources. And that's your goal. That's your job as the owner, as the president, as the CEO of this company is to be a good steward of the resources under your care. And I think some of the knowledge you might gain today about the basics and this is stuff like everything I do. I tell everybody the same thing. This is not rocket science. This is basic blocking and tackling, but there's a discipline to it, which requires a system, which enables you over time to become an expert at it. So there's a kind of a running theme through a lot of the work that we do with clients, which is the stuff is simple. It's not complicated kinds of things that we're talking about doing when we talk about strategic planning and execution. But just because it's simple, you know, simple means a lack of complexity. So it's not complicated, but it can be difficult. It's hard. So like, you know, doing 50 push-ups is not, it's not complicated. Everybody knows how to do a push-up, but it's hard to do 50 of them in a row. There's only, you know, not very many people can do that in the general population. So the kind of stuff that we're talking about is simple in terms of it's not complicated, but it's hard in the sense that it requires you to come back to it again and again and again and work it as part of the system. The same way that getting up every day and doing you know, at least 20 push-ups before you jump in the shower, it's a simple thing to do, but not a lot of people are going to have the fortitude or the discipline to do it. But you do it enough times over a long enough period of time, and pretty soon you're an expert at it. And it's not the complexity of it that's the expert. It's the experience that makes you the expert. So – Let's jump in. When we talk about marketing, unfortunately, a lot of business owners think that marketing is one of those things that has to be done by somebody who has a marketing degree. And there's this, like I said, voodoo earlier, and there and there's that sense, you know, and, and it, it's only that that trepidation to jump into marketing is only heightened by pop culture shows like Mad Men, where they have this ability to just pull words out of the air. And and I don't mean to insinuate that advertising is marketing, but I think you understand what I'm saying where marketers are looked at as these, uh, these, you know, kind of clairvoyant, uh, you know, geniuses who have this ability to compel people to buy your product or service 
at, with these the, the the way they write copy or the way they put images together or the way they name products or whatever it happens to be that they're doing for you, you go, there's no way I could do that because I didn't go to school for that or I don't have any experience in that. Or, but let me explain something to you. Nobody knows your product better than you do. Nobody knows your customer better than you do. The problem is you haven't t- you don't often spend a lot of time thinking about your product or your product's relevance to your customer. You don't spend a lot of time thinking about your customer. And what makes good marketers great marketers is the fact that they obsess about the customer. That's all they think about. They have the luxury of not worrying about things, you know, operational details like all the HR fires you have to put out or the operational uh, issues you have to deal with and maintaining inventory levels and fulfillment or the facility stuff that you struggle with when you're outgrowing your current space. So you have all this other stuff on your plate and, and you don't have the time to obsess about the customer. What I want to encourage you to do today is build in this kind of routine obsession over your customer so that on a regular basis, quarterly, triannual, semiannual, whatever you, whatever rhythm you can work into your organization, you start to put these kinds these marketing plans together where you do obsess about the customer and what they want and how you're going to deliver it to them so that over time you become not only the person who knows the most about your customer in in the world but the person who's doing the most to serve your customer and to anticipate what the needs of your customer are and i firmly believe that you can outwit outthink outexecute any outside professional because you know more about these people than they do and that's ultimately what it takes now you can say I know this about this person, but I don't know how to exploit it, and that's where you can go out and hire the help. But for some, for you to abdicate that responsibility or that for you to abdicate that role of knowing the most about your customer is a huge mistake, and you you completely take yourself out of the business in terms of its its future and its vision if you do that that's my firm belief so if you're going to if you're going to say hey i just want to focus on making better widgets i'm going to hire somebody else whose responsibility it is to to go out and find a market for them i don't think you're going to have a company for very long i think you're going to have a lot of really nice widgets in a, in a warehouse that nobody wants and history is full of people who've had great ideas and brought those ideas to market, but never asked the question, is there a market for the executed idea? And that's what we're talking about here. So marketing, it's all about driving sales. And if you forget about that, then you start to, to just put window dressing around lots of things with a marketing plan. So it becomes more about, well, we need a better looking website, uh, or we need the latest technology on our website, or we need a mobile app, or we need... Uh, a nicer brochure or we want to put an LED sign out front. All of those things become window dressing because they're not about about driving sales. I'm not saying they can't be about driving sales, but I'm saying a lot of business owners don't do them for the right reasons. They do them because it's you know a shiny object. And if entrepreneurs are guilty of anything, it's the bright shiny object syndrome. You know they see a, a new technology platform or they see a new. Uh, a new web-enabled whatchamacallit, and they go, oh, we, you know, we want that. Let's get that. And nobody stops to say, okay, what's the ROI going to be on that? How much are sales going to go up because of this quote-unquote marketing 
uh, tactic or strategy that we're going to pursue. So when you're talking about driving sales, the first question to ask is not what are we selling, but who are we selling to? And when you talk about customers, there's two, I'm going to mention, I'll give you some resources. Uh, three good books that I think talk about the stuff we're going to talk about today. And demographics and psychographics come up in each one of these three books in different ways. So I'd encourage you to take a look at all of them. And, I'll, and you don't even have to read the whole book. I'm going to give you the real good cheat sheet on this. But if you read uh, John Janch's book on, uh, called Duct Tape Marketing, it's a real good book. It's, uh, I got it here right in front of me. It's first published in 2006, it looks like. And he's got a whole program where you can become like a certified duct tape marketing coach. And all, I haven't done that. And that's, that's not what I need to do. But the book is really good because it's very practical. And in the first chapter, he starts off the book. You know, and so this is duct tape marketing. What are we talking about today? Marketing. And the first chapter of his book, what I love about it, the way he starts this book now, the first thing I love about it is that the forward is written by another author that we're going to talk about. The forward is written by Michael Gerber, who wrote the E-Myth, uh, which I think is a brilliant tie-in for these two books. But the first chapter is about identifying your ideal client. And, and so he goes into talking about demographics and psychographics as part of that. So John Janch's book, Duct Tape Marketing, is a great resource. Chapter one, it deals with everything we're talking or a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about today. Another book uh, that I'm reading right now uh, that kind of prompted me to, to even do this as a podcast because it reminded me of, of how we used to do this in almost all of the at the beginning of almost every engagement, and we do it right now. We do it probably about half the time, um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The Inside Advantage by Robert Bloom is another book, and Chapter Three talks about this same thing of identifying who your customer is, and he talks. He talks about demographics and psychographics. I, I personally, I kind of like the way Janch talks about it because I think it's it's more practical. And and Janch's book, the subtitle is "The World's Most Practical Small Business Marketing Guide," and I think that's true. He, he does a great job of breaking this stuff down in practical terms. And then the last book uh, is "The E Myth" by Michael Gerber. This is one of my favorite books of all time. I put it right up there um, with uh, "Mastering the Rockefeller Habits." as you know, two of my go-to business books that I use on almost every every interaction I have with a client, something in one of those two books comes out. And Gerber in Chapter 17 talks about this. Now, what's interesting to me is, you know, and the, Gerber puts this at the end of his book. It's almost the last chapter. It might be the last chapter. Um, and it's, it's the title of the chapter is Your Marketing Strategy. But again, Gerber's book is a lot about systems. And so the last thing he gets to is the marketing system. Like, you know, what's the system? And he actually doesn't even get into tactics. He, he kind of, I don't know. I, I think he could have. I don't know if he was tired by the time he got to the end of the book. Or maybe he's one of those guys who thought, you know, I didn't go to school for marketing, so I can't write a practical chapter on it. But he almost gives himself a pass. He says, you have to think about this stuff, and here's some ways to think about it, but I'm not going to tell you what to do about it. And, um, and, Janch and Bloom are much better at giving you some practical things that you can do. So demographics and psychographics, that's how this whole thing about the book started. So go back, go read those three books. Uh, just read the three chapters in those three books, and it will be worth the 30 or 40 bucks or whatever it costs you on Amazon. I'll put links in the show notes. When we talk about demographics, we're talking about who your customers are. 
So this is kind of the 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 vital statistics on your customer. You know, are they male or female? How old are they? Where do they live? What's their income? Um, are are they? You know, what's their but you know, basically, what's their demographic profile? I think everybody knows what demographics means. So it's it's the facts about your customer base, and it's the and it has to be the common things about your customer base. So you're not you don't we don't have customers who look exactly like each other in every aspect of their lives, but in some aspect of their lives, they all look alike. So for instance, um, everybody who's a client of mine owns a business. Okay, but they could be male or female. They could be young or old. They could live in this zip code or across the world. You know, I've got customers that that match all of those. So, but what's the common denominator? So, when you're talking about demographics, you're after what are the common denominators that describe these people. And when you talk about psychographics, you're talking about something completely different. Psycho- psychographics deal with why do they buy what they buy? How do they make those buying decisions? So for instance, um, you know, psychographic profile of a smartphone's um, typical customer, you know, if, let's, let's say that uh, Samsung's coming out with a new phone and it's all about social media and pictures and, and texting or whatever. And so the psychographic, pro- so the demographic profile for that customer, maybe it's aimed at uh, teens and 20-somethings. And that's the demographic profile. So they can build all kinds of descriptions around, um, you know, what kind of homes these kids are in. Are they middle class, lower middle class, upper middle, or does that even matter? Uh, where do they live? Is this a phone that's going to be marketed in the United States, or is it going to be marketed in the U.S. and, and Seoul, or is it going to be, you know, you get the idea. So they could describe demographically what those customers look like, but the psychographic profile might hit on the fact that what they buy, what their friends buy. So there are pockets of use where, um, you know, they might go into a major metropolitan area because they know that there are going to be more pockets of these teens and 20-somethings who are going to see what others are buying. And they know that these these groups buy in like groups of 8 to 12 because you have a, a close group of friends that are like 8 to 12 friends and when one of them gets a new phone, they all get a new phone. And so they start to build their plan around influencing those people who buy first or or making it easy to buy. Um, it's interesting. One of the cell phone companies right now, cell phone providers, has you know this family plan. I don't even remember who it is, but it's kind of this neat marketing campaign where it's just that. It's like, hey, you can get a, a plan with all your friends. So psychographically, they – identified this customer base as, you know, these are the kind of people who share bills, whether that's going out to a bar and splitting the tab at the end, or whether that's, um, you know, college students who aren't working and they're sharing apartments and they're trying to find ways to save money. I got a friend of mine who shared a cell phone plan with another friend of ours for years. And and so psychographically, it's like, well, how do they make those decisions and how do we go out and influence them? So demographics are kind of the dry facts of the common denominators of what describes your customers, what character traits or what financial traits or demographic traits describe them. Psychographics look more at how do they buy and why do they buy. So you have to get both of those. You have to get a good picture of both of those to architect a good marketing plan. And it's interesting. I think it's uh, Gerber. 
you know, he, he makes some pretty profound statements in his book. And again, it's not nearly as practical as Jench's book or Bloom's book. But, you know, he, he basically says nobody knows why they buy it. And he makes an interesting statement. I don't know if it's based on research or, or what. Let's see if I can find it real quick. But he says, um, you know, in a sales presentation, data have shown us the sale is made or lost in the first three minutes. And before that, you know, he talks about in television commercials, we're told the sale, or, sale is made or lost in the first three or four seconds. In a print ad, tests have shown that 75% of the buying decisions are made in the headline alone. And then he says, in a sales presentation, which is what you and I do, we, we make sales presentations, data have shown us that the sale is made or lost in the first three minutes. So he, he uses that to say, you know, people don't know why they buy. They, there's A lot of stuff is based on their first impressions. A lot of it's based on their unconscious perceptions of who you are and what you do and what your product is like and that kind of stuff. And, but, you know, and, and again, Jench doesn't give you the practical stuff. Or Gerber doesn't give you the practical steps to take to find this stuff out. He just says he thinks you need to know it. I think you need to know it too, but I think that there are reasons that people buy. And I think there are things that you can say during those three minutes that will determine whether somebody buys or not. So it's important to know those things. Now, let's get practical. So we know that we have to know demographically and psychographically what our customer looks like. But how the heck do you do that? Well, the first thing that you should do, so what we're talking about, again, is what, driving sales. Right? So this is all about driving sales. Well, driving sales usually means it, – well, it always means either getting people who are already buying from me to buy more or getting people who aren't buying from me to buy from me. But when we talk about marketing plans, most of the time people have in their head getting new customers. That's, that's typically what a marketing plan is about. It's, some marketing plans are specifically aimed at – getting existing customers to buy more. But for the most part, what we're talking about is going out and getting new customers. So there's this tendency to look out at the world and say, what do I want my new customers to look like? The reality is that your new customers are probably going to look a whole heck of a lot like your existing customers, right? Because your existing customers have already seen what you have to offer. You've, you've done some fair, reasonable job of getting in front of the demographic group that looks like them. You've done some fair, reasonable job of crafting your product, your service, or your pitch psychographically so that it appeals to them, and they've bought. So if you did that yesterday, there's a good chance that you're going to do that today with somebody who's very similar to them. But the tendency is to ignore the fact that our future customers are probably going to look a lot like our existing customers. And the, the reason I think that we ignore that a lot of times is because as entrepreneurs, they're usually incredibly optimistic, and they always want to think that the next customer is going to be bigger than the last customer. The next customer experience is going to be better than the last customer experience. The last kind of customer um, you know, universal roadmap and how we did things and the processes we used is going to be more efficient than the last one that we went through. But what we really need to get our arms around initially, we're going to talk about the future in a second, but what we need to get our arms around initially is what do we have now? What do the customers look like now? And let's use that because a couple of reasons. One, again, we're a small company. We're not talking about a $100 million company that's got millions of bucks to blow on a marketing campaign. We're talking about a small business. So where can we get the biggest bang for our buck? Where can we retask resources or make changes that are going to have an immediate impact in sales and getting new customers? 
And this is the area that, that that happens. Don't try to create something brand new. Let's just work with, with what we've already got and make sure we're using it effectively. And the second thing is that it's def, not only is it the, the fastest bang for the buck, it's the cheapest bang for the buck. So it's, it's much less expensive for us to go back and, and dive deeper into our existing market and try to pull out more customers that look like the ones that we have now than it is to go into a new market and try to pull out customers that don't look a lot because we don't know a lot about those people and we're going to spend a lot of money getting educated on those. So in terms of the speed with which we can affect sales and the ROI we get from our marketing dollars, it's best to start with a picture of who we're selling to now. So how do you do that? One of my favorite tools in in looking at customers, whether we're doing due diligence for somebody who's getting ready to sell a business or whether we're trying to work on a marketing plan with somebody who's, who wants to grow, <clears throat> we look at something I call customer concentration risk. And customer concentration risk is, is simply this. We take a list of all of your sales for, say, the last four or five years, and we break them up by year. And we list those sales in terms of your largest customer to your smallest customer. So your biggest customer is number one on the list. Your smallest customer is at the very bottom of the list. And then we count how many of those customers there are. So how many different customers did we have during the year? And for argument's sake, let's say we've had 1,000 customers during the year. Or let's say say 10,000. We had 10,000 customers during the year. And when we look at the largest customers, we we will find out that of the 10,000 customers that we have, 2,000 of those customers, the top 2,000 customers accounted for 80% of our revenue. This is the 80-20 rule. And we'll find out that at the bottom end of the spectrum, um, if, if we go one step farther, we'll find out that a lot of those weren't profitable at the, at the bottom of the list. So customer concentration risk is just that. So it, but it looks at top line revenue. So, what did we? How much did we sell to those customers? There's another statistic that's even more valuable if you can get to it, and that statistic is or it, that chart is what's called a whale's head chart. And so, the whale's head chart it uses the same kind of list, but instead of showing you gross sales, it shows you gross profit. So what's the pro- – not the sales that I made on the customer. What's the profit that I made on the customer? And this is really interesting if you can put one of these together for your business because what it's going to show you and, – and I'll put a link in the show notes to – there's an article on quickfix.com that explains this better visually than I probably can explain it on the podcast. But what happens is as you chart the cumulative profits of your customers from most profitable customer to least profitable customer, you see that the line on the graph rises very, very quickly. And so if you think about the front half of Moby Dick's head, that's what you're looking at, this real sharp increase. And then it levels off about the time you get the Moby Dick's blow spout, uh, blow hole. And, and those customers, so that rapid rise, that's usually about 20% of your customers. And then when that line flattens out, what that means is you're not making profits. So the, the next group of customers on your list, after you get through that top 20%, you're break even on these folks, meaning that your revenue that you're bringing in from them is about what it costs you to service them. And so, so um, 
So that top of the whale's head kind of continues on a flat line. And then you get to the back of the whale's head, and the line starts going back down again. starts curving down again. And what that means, and that's usually the bottom 20% of your customers, what that means is that you're losing money on those people. By the time you factor in all of your costs, the revenue that you're bringing in from those folks isn't even what it costs you to service them. And this, this is true of virtually every business. Now, we're, if you make some of the changes that we're going to talk about, it won't be true of your business, but as your business grows, it will become true again. You'll have to take these actions again, prune back, and then it won't be true of your business. Then you'll grow, and then it will be true of your business. And that's just the nature of the beast. That's this kind of cyclical thing that happens in businesses. So so what does that mean? So I got this real pretty graph. Yeah, it kind of does look like the front half of a whale's head. Yeah, big deal. What do I do with it? Well, those last 20% of your customers – the ones that aren't profitable, the backside of the whale's head, <clears throat> you got to get rid of those folks. I'm not saying fire them, um, but because what it, what's happened is this is not a good fit for you and them. And and, it, and what I say, what I mean is it's not a good fit for you, and it's not a good fit for them. So you're actually doing these people a disservice. And it's hurting you to do them the disservice. So you can fix that. That's the great news is that you know who these people are and you can literally go to them and you can go, hey, this isn't working for you and it's not working for me. So let's find a solution. And I've dealt with this in the past by selling those customers to somebody that could make a lot of money on this. So the back half of your whale's head could be the front half of somebody else's whale's head. And there's value to that person in bringing those customers into the business. So if there's value, they're willing to pay you to help transition those folks over. So, um, you know, sometimes that depends on the business that you're in. If you're in retail, you, you can't do that. But in retail, you may make those customers go away by raising prices, and now they no longer want to stick around, and so they just leave. Um, in some cases, the transaction cost of selling those off it doesn't make it worth it, and you might just send them a letter that says you're discontinuing service. Sometimes those customers are in a geographic region. You know, they, those that that graph could show something like store sales, and you know, there are three store sales that are on the back half of that whale's head. And you go, you know, we're going to trim back those three locations, and so you just shut the stores. And and there's you may maybe the only value there is selling off the inventory or whatever. But my point is. You need to get rid of those customers, but getting rid of those customers could mean different things to different businesses. Try to think outside the box and just say, hey, <clears throat> here's here's the interesting thinking in this. Here's here's what you might not hear somewhere else is like what, what I said before. It's not working for you and it's not working for them, which means you have an opportunity to solve a problem for them. Unfortunately, the problem is you, right? So it's it's not working for them because of something that you're doing. But you still have an opportunity to fix that for them, and there could be value when you solve any problem. So the last 20% you need to get rid of. And then for the middle 60%, so this is the flat top of the whale's head that you're not making any money on. But you're break-even. You're not losing money, but you're not making money. And what I would say is consider a price increase <clears throat> or consider offering some kind of add-on service, high-value, low-cost service, so that you can begin to make money on those folks because it's simply, in my mind, it's not acceptable to just say, oh, well, those people help cover my overhead. 
I think you need if it, that may be true now, but if you just try to maintain that situation, eventually those people are going to become the back half of the whale's head, and you're going to have a bigger back half than you're going to have a front half, and that leads to a, a, a business that's in very poor financial shape. So you have to have some plan. You have to have some strategy for addressing that top of the whale. The easiest one is a price increase because a lot of those people are going to stay with you even with a price increase. It's not that it's not working for them. It's just kind of neutral for them. Or maybe it is working for them, but it's not working for you. Or it could be that it's, you think that it's working for you because you convinced yourself that it's helping you cover overhead, but it's really not working for them because you just look at them as – kind of the redheaded stepchild of your business and you don't give them a lot of time and attention. So you have to have some strategy for dealing with that top that top flat portion of the whale's head. I'd say price increase is kind of the the easy strategy because it's easy to increase prices and see what happens. That group could become profitable very quickly for you. And again, this is what we're after. We're again, we're looking at our existing customers. Where are we going to get the fastest move in sales by addressing existing customers. We're, we're going to get the most bang for our book, buck in terms of marketing dollars. It's going to be with existing customers. So the front half of the whale's head. So what do you do with those folks? Well, a lot of you are going to be tempted to just leave them alone. It's like, hey, those are my most profitable people. I don't want to screw with that. But again, it's impossible to have a healthy business that's not growing. You can't tread water forever. Eventually, you're going to drown, right? So you have to be moving forward. And the same way that you need a strategy to deal with that top flat half of the whale's head, you need a strategy to deal with that front end. What are we going to do with that? Well, there's two things I think you should do to address the front side of that. Number one is build plans to duplicate those customers. So, And we're going to talk about that next. But what you want are more of those highly profitable customers. So you need to build plans to go get more of those customers. The second thing that you need to do, and this is often overlooked, a lot of companies don't even build plans to get more. They're happy if new ones walk in the door, but they're not out there with an active, engaged marketing strategy to drive new ones through the front door. But they, if they're not doing – sometimes they will have – they'll be trying to duplicate those folks. A lot of times they won't. Almost never will they do the second thing that I recommend for the front half of that whale's head, and that is to make sure you're growing with those top 20%. You need to have a customer lifecycle mapped out that gives those people some place to go. Oftentimes, your top 20% are your most progressive customers. They're the ones that are taking advantage of every good or service that you offer um, sometimes they're paying a premium for it. Sometimes they've actually driven you to to um, create new products or services because they come to you, they look at you as a partner and collaborate with you and tell you what they need before they need it so you can build it for them. And you need to have a strategy in place so that those people can continue to do that, so that you continue to have an offering that's relevant, so that you continue to have something that they want, and they'll continue to work with you over the years. Otherwise... You can get to a situation that we see very, very often where the, a company's best customers outgrow that company. And that very, very profitable top 20%, that front half of the whale's head, eventually disappears because they haven't kept up with their customers. 
and that's not a good situation. So two things. You have to duplicate the front half of the whale's head and go out and find more people that look like those folks. But you also need to look real deep into that group and say, where are they going next, and do I have something that they're going to want? Because if you don't, you need to get busy building it. So let's talk about, again, stay very practical here, and let's talk about duplicating that top 20% because that's what a lot of marketing is going to come down to. Uh, Get a little water. I've been talking too much. I need to get like a co-host, and I've thought about that. Uh, So I'm not talking all the time, but I have so much to say. I worry that if I bring somebody else in, it's going to be like a two-hour show. And maybe that's good. I don't know. But let's talk about the um, duplication of these groups. So I'm all about practical stuff. How do we get this? One thing, and I I don't remember who talks about this. It might be Janch because he's so practical. It might be Bloom. But this is something that we've done, I think, before we even read it in those books. We would have customers do this. And if you work in any, almost any kind of general ledger software package or sales management system, can spit out a list of your top customers. That's how we got the data to put this whale's head or customer concentration risk data together. So you take that list of customers, <clears throat> and you some of the information we want could already be in that system. So name, address, um, And then it depends on what you collect on these people. Now, companies are collecting more and more stuff on customers, especially online companies, because it's so easy to collect it when people sign up or when they check out online where they're actually entering the data themselves. It's not like standing in front of a cash register and being asked, you know, what's your age and household income. But there are literally websites that do that. They They haven't found a way to do it at Best Buy yet unless you sign up for a credit card. But that's what people want. They want more of this demographic information. So spit out from whatever accounting program or sales management program you have as much data as you can and get it into a spreadsheet. And then if the list is small enough, if you're a service business, the list is usually small enough. You could delegate out pieces of it to managers or or a customer service personnel or, or account managers who are familiar with these people. And List out on the spreadsheet and and columns all the other things that you think you need to know about your customer that might be common denominators. So, again, demographically, we're looking for those common denominators. And so it might – like you probably already have zip code. So you can use zip code to tell geographically whether your customers are concentrated in a certain area. You might also – I mentioned income level. If you're business to business, you probably know what the company sales are for your customer. So, you know, how much is that customer doing in revenue in their business on an annual basis? Number of employees that that customer has, if it's a B2B customer. Uh, number of people in the household, if it's a, a um, uh, individual. So, you know, if, like if you're in insurance sales business, you probably know how many kids each one of your customers has. And it, that may already be in your CRM system or something like that. But get as much data out as you can and then think about, what are the extra columns that I think we need to know? And then go about gathering that information. <clears throat> and if you need somebody with some statistical chops to help you break it down, go out and find that. You know, a great place to start is your CPA. A lot of CPAs are frustrated statisticians, and you can get them to or get somebody on their team to break this stuff down. Um, 
You can also go to some business consultants or marketing people. You know, I, I mentioned these. So this is a great example of where you might enlist that outside professional expertise. And you bring them in and you say, hey, we've collected all this data on our customers. And what we want you to do is take the data, analyze it, and bring it back and tell us demographically what our customers look like. And you'll, you know exactly what you're asking for. You just don't have the technical expertise or possibly the time to make it happen. So you're going to delegate that to somebody. That's a very effective use of, of outside professionals. <clears throat> but with a lot of the tools, Microsoft Excel that we use today, um, if you if you're, have a rudimentary understanding of pivot tables, a lot of times you can break this stuff down in an afternoon or a morning and learn an incredible amount about your customers. And we do this kind of work when we get involved. In, we, a lot of times I'll invest the time, my team's time, to do this during due diligence so I can understand more about how we can help the business and where the opportunities are to really – make a difference in growing the company. And this is the kind of stuff that our prospects and our customers get so excited about. When you bring this kind of information, insight into their customer list to them, they start to think of all kinds of ways that they can use it. And again, what we're talking about is a spreadsheet. So don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. But you might need some help breaking the data down. Now, the other thing that you can do is if you don't have <coughs> if you don't have the data in your system or your customer list is so vast and, and you don't have individual relationships where you can get the data, you can send out a survey to your customers and you can even entice them to fill out the survey by giving them some kind of reward. It could be a low-cost uh, product or service that you provide so it keeps your cost down or you could you know, buy gift certificates or you know, what, what have you. But make it – make the enticement – uh, fit with the amount of time and effort you're asking them to commit to filling out the survey. Make those two commensurate with each other. So <clears throat> if you're asking them to fill out a 100-question survey, you might need to put in you know, a 20 or 30 or $40 gift card depending on how much information you're asking them to reveal. If you're asking them for 10 questions, um, you know, maybe you, you can give them a little bonus or you know, some, some kind of kitschy uh, thing that you could send off to them. I can't think of anything recently that I've done like this or I got a small reward. I've done I've done large customer surveys, uh, especially for like software providers. <coughs> Excuse me. And they'll you know, they'll, I think the last offer I got was like fifty bucks. They sent me a fifty dollar American Express gift card if I would fill out their survey. But it was a pretty extensive survey and I didn't do it because I just didn't have the time to do it. But you know, fifty bucks is fifty bucks. If you're not doing anything else, you know, you're going to watch TV. Why not fill out a survey and make 50 bucks? That's the CPA in me coming out. So let me get some more water here. So you can survey to get the demographic information from your customer. You might have to pay them a little bit to do it. But then let's talk about psychographics. Now, I'll, I will say that this is where your dollars spent on marketing research could really come in handy. Um, I worked with a guy named Phil Balducci in oh, – it was like 2000, 2001. And Phil had a marketing firm. I'm, I'm sure he still does. He was up in Tampa at the time. And Phil was a master at this, of, at crafting survey questions 
to get at the heart of why people were making the decisions they were making or why they were making the decision not to purchase something. And I saw Phil run some focus groups, and that was kind of cool because I saw him interact with people. And I saw him uh, you know, work on product design and have input into that. And that was interesting because he was he had some really creative ideas about that. But the thing that impressed me most about Phil was watching him architect a survey. And I really started to understand not a demographic survey, a psychographic survey that was after the motivations that get people to buy what they want to buy or to get the feedback we needed to be able to craft a message or a product so that it was appealing to them. And I really, st- I really understood when I watched Phil do that in a conference room where we're kicking it back and forth the questions that should be asked. I really understood the art of doing that kind of work. So, you know, I'm not saying don't try it yourself. That's fine. But I'm saying if you're going to spend money on marketing research, the psychographic side of things is really where you're going to get your money's worth. Demographically, I think a lot of times what you're paying for is crunching the numbers and coming back with uh, some, some bullet points of what our customer, you know, what are those common denominators? Because there can be so much data out there. Sometimes it can be hard for you to identify what the real common denominators are. But psychographically, is if there's a voodoo side to marketing research, it's the psychographic survey. So uh, there's been a lot of talk about surveys, and, and business owners talk to me all the time about wanting to do surveys. And I go, what kind of survey are you want to do? And they go, oh, you know that easy one, that easy two question survey. And they're talking about net promoter score, which is, you know, the the, the two questions of um, like one might be a customer satisfaction question. The other one is how likely are you to refer us to a close friend or colleague on a scale of one to ten. And the interesting thing about the net promoter score is I think you throw out like everything less than a seven, and you only count the sevens, eight, nines, and tens, and that's how you you grade. You know the the results, but this is not net promoter score. Net promoter score again is a measure of customer satisfaction. We don't care about customer satisfaction right now. What we're looking at is who is our ideal customer, not whether the customers we have are happy with us. We're assuming that the twenty percent we're going after for this psychographic survey are happy with us. If they're not, then we have bigger problems, and and we're not you know. But again, we're looking at the the top end, the top front part of that whale's head. These are the most profitable people in our business. So it's pretty safe to assume that they're happy with what we're doing. And we want to go find out more about them, not just about who they are, but about why they buy what we produce. So again, don't get this confused with net promoter score, which is like the buzzword around customer surveys right now. And I'm not, I'm not knocking net promoter score. I think it's good. But I think the thing that net promoter score is good at is uncovering blind spots because a lot of companies think that customer satisfaction-wise they're just fine, and then they go out and commission a net promoter score, and it comes back with absolutely abysmal results. And they go, oh, maybe we have some work to do here, where the day before they thought that they were knocking it out of the park. So net promoter score is good, but it's it's not the kind of survey we're talking about here. <clears throat> so now let's say that you've done you've done your spreadsheet demographically you know who your customer is let's say that you put together your own psychographic survey to uncover the motivations of why people buy some of the questions you might ask are hey why did you buy our product or service Um, other questions that get asked are how many quotes did you get before you bought our product or service what were the things that you considered um, while you were buying it 
Uh, how happy have you been with it? And describe what you're happy with. So are you happy with the cost? Are you happy with the quality and the workmanship? Are you happy with the warranty? You know, so those three questions, depending on how they answer them, will tell you whether you're, you're going after price-sensitive customers with a, a low-price, high-volume type of strategy. Those are the people who say, I'm most happy with the price I paid. The folks who say, I'm most happy with the quality and the workmanship are obviously a different group that you would go after. The people who are more happy with the warranty are a completely different group than you, that you would go after. So you can ask, again, I don't want to mythologize the psychographic side of this. I think you can do your own psychographic research, put together your own surveys. Uh, if you're a small enough company, that makes a lot of sense. When I say small enough, you know, a couple million bucks. If you get to be bigger than that and you're going to invest significant amount of time and resources in getting something out to your customers and asking them questions, I think you probably should spend some money to have an expert tell you whether the answers you get back are going to give you the kinds of information you can act on. Because sometimes you'll put together a survey and it won't tell you anything. Um, so let's say that you've got that information back and demographically, you know exactly what your customers look like. Psychographically, you know why they buy from you. What are you going to do with that information? And again, we're looking for not not some kind of brand new campaign, not some kind of brand new market. We're looking at what can we do right now to get the biggest bang for our buck and the fastest return on our money. And the first thing I would say, there's three questions that you need to answer. The first is, are my current offerings in line with what that top 20% wants? So is the current stuff that I'm selling, is this what they want to buy? Because sometimes we get those top 20% customers by some kind of fluke. Like they just happened. We ran into a situation where we had a company that asked us to make a certain kind of, not us, but one of my clients. They asked us to make a certain kind of valve. <clears throat> They're in a business that built um, basically mufflers for air compressors. And there was a company that asked them to make a certain kind of valve and – they didn't make a they didn't make a lot of valves. They they just weren't in that business. But this company asked them to do it and they could and they said, Yeah, we'll do that. But because it was a special request, they didn't have any idea what the market price was for this thing or what it should be. And so they just and and they weren't sure that they wanted to make a lot of them. So they priced it, you know, pretty high. And the margins on it, the margins for the rest for most of their products Gross profit margin was around 45 to 50%, depending on what the product was. The gross profit margin on these, these little valves were uh, like 80 to 85%. So they're very, very profitable for them. And so the company that bought them, you know, they, they were happy with it. And they started putting them, there, putting them on their product. And a competitor kind of reverse engineered one of their products and saw this valve and it wasn't. It was something that they could get made overseas, but it was, they're going to have to order like ten million of them to get them made over ten million dollars worth to get them made overseas. So they call my client and they say, "Hey, you're making these for so and so. Would you make us some?" And they said, "Sure." So now they have two customers buying these things. Well, that that process repeated itself about three or four more times, and pretty soon they were selling more of these valves than anything else that they were selling. And so we did the demographic research and we did the psychographic research. With, it was very simple. 
um, because we're talking to engineers and we could we could quantify why they were buying what they're buying and purchasing agents why they're buying what they're buying and we said our current offerings in line with what our top 20% wants and it wasn't the fact was we had gotten into this valve business as a fluke but we were very good at it and people were willing to pay for it but none of our current offerings touted this line of business it was still something that people were kind of coming to us and asking for every once in a while but we weren't in the market trying to drum up more of those customers so you may have very profitable elements of your business you may have very profitable customers that aren't there because you pulled them in they're there because you basically took an order from them and you didn't think to exploit that. And this happens in service businesses all the time. If you get into uh, like some of the work that we do with law firms or doctor's offices, medical practices, even CPA accounting firms, you go through and you find some of the, the most profitable customers that they have, they don't do what they do for that most profitable customer for anybody else. And so you have to understand, you have to to find out why that's the case. Maybe they don't have the capacity to do that for anybody else. Maybe it's not something that they want to do, but you know, it is highly profitable. They just don't want to build a company around it. Maybe it's a, you know, kind of buggy, buggy whip type service that they know is going to be obsolete in a few years. But, um, but you know, they're willing to service this one customer. They just won't want to invest a lot of capital in something that's going to go away. So, so there'd be lots of reasons why they haven't, you know, exploited that and, and blown it out. But, you do need to ask the question. If you bring this data back and you go, "Holy cow, we're not even we're not even advertising to get more of these people. We're not we don't even have a brochure or a section on our website that says we do this stuff. So how in the world are we going to get more people at it?" So you can make some real quick changes there that are going to make an impact. So that's the first question. Second question is. So these top twenty percent customers demographically, we know who they are, where they are. And so the question is, where do they hang out so that I can reach more of them? So where are these people? You know, are they all members of a certain professional association or industry trade association? Are they all are they all in one geographic region and we need to go open up a second office in that area? Are they all do they all do the same kinds of things on Saturday mornings? You know, one customer we had, I can't even remember what they sold now, uh, but their target customer was basically moms in strollers, and they all met for these, uh, you know, mom exercise groups in neighborhoods where twenty or thirty moms would get together and do this three mile walk with their newborns. And that was when we started talking about. <coughs> I think it was a chiropractor's office, you know, and the chiropractor had a specialty in pregnant moms, and so they said. And moms who are recovering from pregnancy. So you said, well, where are these people? Where do we find these people? And they said, well, here's a couple of places. There was like a yoga place that did this uh, for pregnant moms. And then there were these stroller groups. And we go, well, what are we doing to market to those people? And so, you know, they, they developed some products that, you know, cup holders that fit on the most popular brand of stroller and, and that kind of stuff that had their logo on them and offered to speak at, uh, property owner association meetings and that kind of stuff to get these folks there. So where are they? That's the second question. Where are they and how can I reach them? The third question is why do they buy? And is my current, and the reason you want to ask that question is do you want to know, is my current pitch effective? So you might find that, 
you know, you thought that the most important thing about your product was price, but you find out after surveying your customers that the safety aspect of what you do is really what, what attracted them to your, to your product. But when you look at your sales pitch, there's nothing in your sales pitch about safety. And so you go, well, if I'm going to get more people who look like this most profitable 20% and they're most concerned about safety, maybe I ought to start talking about safety in my sales pitch more often. So three quick questions. Once you've got the data back, is are my current offerings in line with what that top 20% wants? Number two, where do they hang out and how can I reach more like them? And number three, why do they buy and is my pitch effective for them? So once you have that, the last thing I'm going to tell you is to name your customer. And this is a very, very effective exercise. And I, would, I get as many clients as I can to do this because I think it's, it's that important. You, you need to get to the point where you can physically describe what your customer looks like. And I had one client who was had a real good artist on their team, and they went so far as to put together this kind of infographic where they drew this woman because their primary, their, their ideal customer was a female, not to be sexist, but the product that they had worked really well for females. And so they drew this this lady, and I think she was in her 40s, and her name might have been something like Sally, and she had red hair, and she had like two kids behind her and a husband and uh, they drew like a, a suburban house behind her, but it was in this kind of infographic style. And then they had bullet points all around her that described different things about her. You know, like she went to college uh, somewhere in the Northeast, you know, it was, and it was incredibly detailed. Now, are they only going to sell to people who look exactly like Sally? No. But having an idea of exactly what Sally looks like informs every product decision and every marketing decision that they make because they're always asking, are we selling to Sally or are we selling to somebody else? Are we making this for Sally or are we making this for somebody else? Is this something Sally would want to buy or is she going to turn her nose up at it? So if once you have this information, you have to do something with it. Answering those three questions that we just talked about will give you some immediate action items. But for the long term, this idea of naming your customer and having a lot of fun with it, your customer should have a name. And I've had cases where businesses, you know, the the sex of the customer wasn't an issue. You know, it's, you know, like 50% of their customers were men and 50% of their women. And so they came up with two. You know, so their customer could be Sally or it could be Bob. And they described each one of them. But, they, you know, they looked a lot like each other. Um, but, you know, obviously, you know, Sally was a woman and Bob was a man. So there were some differences. So if they were selling to a woman, they knew exactly what that woman would look like. If they were selling to a man, they knew exactly what that ideal male customer looked like. And this, this is a powerful thing, <clears throat> not only for just kind of getting your arms around who you're trying to sell to. It's a fantastic thing. There's probably no better tool that you can use to get your team to understand what marketing is all about. Because again, when it gets down to it, marketing is about making sales to customers. And if your team knows what that customer looks like, they're going to be much better at crafting products and services, and they're going to be much better at pitching products and services. They're going to be better, much better at publicizing products and services because they know who the, those messages are going to. And it's a very, very effective way to take all the mystery out of marketing for your team 
and you build this common language around Sally and Bob. And are we doing this for Sally and Bob, or are we doing this because we think that this is a really neat thing, and uh, we got some extra dollars, so we're going to spend some money on it. So that's my kind of um, marketing in a nutshell. And I want to make it practical for business owners so that they're empowered and encouraged to go out there and work on their own marketing plans and not just see this as something that I've got to hire a guy who went to uh, a great university and studied in their marketing plan. I've got to hire this girl who has this great Fifth Avenue pedigree and uh, you know she's going to be able to take our product or service to the next level because she's got this background in marketing. Not everybody has to look like Dan Draper to be great at marketing and advertising. So I, uh, I really hope that you guys got something out of this. I hope that uh, when we get to the next session, we're able to build on some of these concepts and, and uh, again, take some of the mystery out of strategic planning and the execution process. This isn't something that you just snap your fingers and it makes a difference in your business. These are activities that you can go through and you should be looking at this kind of breaking down of your customer on a routine systematic basis because your customer will change over time the first time you do this you're probably going to get a lot out of it and it's going to be like wow we learned so much and then you're going to run with it for a year or two and it's going to fizzle and you're going to forget who sally and bob were but if you make this a discipline of asking once a year have sally you know what's sally up to what's bob up to have they changed Has their family um, grown? What's the, the the situation that they're dealing with? And do our products and services need to adapt to that? That's what keeps companies relevant and fresh in the market. And that's what enables continued growth of your products and services and your company as a whole. So it's not, there's some mystery to it. There's some kind of the nuanced magic to it. When you get into the psychographic stuff, I think that's the biggest thing companies are challenged with. But once you get past that, if you could build this discipline into the company of looking at who your best customers are and how do you increase them and how do you grow with them, then you become the marketing expert that can't be matched no matter what kind of professional you bring in, no matter what kind of pedigree they have. Nobody knows more about your customers than you do. Nobody knows more about your products and services than you do. So take the challenge to be your own best marketer. I'm Joey Brandon, and we'll see you back next week.